Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Not Even Mad, a show where we are plainly probing, seldom stodgy, and incontrovertibly opinionated, but we're not even mad. Today we speak of the Brittany Griner for Victor Boot Prisoner Exchange, Cinema's Democratic Party defection, and ask if content moderation is really possible. While we retain our reputation for refutation, we vow to be not even mad. So who are we this week? Well, I present you with special guest host, Sarada Perry. She's a communication strategist and a former speechwriter for President Obama. Sarada, I ask you, what's one question you want to know from Samuel Bankman-Fried if he were to testify under oath? I want to know who he wants to play him in the Showtime limited series about his crimes. Do you have, do you have a suggestion? Oh, uh, who's my suggestion? I don't know, one of those like, you know, dumpy toddler dressing guys. I'm thinking of the guy, I can't think of his name. Oh, Jonah Hill. That's it. That guy. That guy. Yeah. I think he might be trending towards uh, Seth Rogen. I think I think uh, SBF's younger than all of them, but that's okay. And Jamie Kerchick also joins us. He's a columnist for Tablet Magazine, author of the New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. What do you want to know from SBF under oath, Jamie? Have you thought about investing in a hairstylist? (laughs) (laughs) My questions, too, run towards the tonsorial. So today on Not Even Mad, I gave you the topics and we go right off the bat to a Democratic Party stalwart herself. Sarah, to take us to cinema's change. All right. So on Friday, Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema announced her decision to leave the Democratic Party and register as an independent. Since winning her Senate seat in 2018, the Green Party activist turned centrist has been a thorn in the side of Democrats. And in an evenly divided Senate, she and West Virginia's Joe Manchin have gleefully wielded their power to tank some of their own party's priorities. So why is she leaving the Democrats now? Here she is explaining it. Because I don't want to be a part of a broken system that focuses on who can make the most noise or who can yell the loudest at each other. Arizonans want a senator who delivers results and then get government out of the way. That's what I'm good at doing, and it's what I'll continue doing. So again, others can do what they want to do. But here in Arizona, folks can depend on me to put my head down, do the work, and deliver results. Ah, yes, the dependable cinema. So she claims she's taking a principled stand against partisanship. But astute political observers who can do basic math say that she defected because she's up for re-election in 2024, has a 37% approval rating among Arizona Democrats, and would probably lose to a primary challenger from the left. So to keep her job, she really has no choice but to run as an independent. So this is sending Democrats to our comfort zone of panic. If she runs as an independent and Democrats nominate someone else, they could divide the party and hand the election over to Republicans. So my take is that cinema's self-interested corporate centrism makes her unpopular with her voters, unelectable in an increasingly blue state. And I think she's here because she's just fundamentally bad at politics. But my colleagues over here might disagree. Uh, That's interesting. Is she bad at politics? A couple months ago, I would say that she's actually good at politics. Stan Barnes of the Copper Group Consulting Group, a Republican consultant out of Arizona who's been on the gist before. He says the same thing. And I always got the impression that national 
Democrats or especially the more progressive minded among them were driven so crazy by cinema that they couldn't or didn't care to see things from her perspective. And I thought she had a pretty decent appraisal of the state. In fact, I think six months ago, she said, well, let's look at Mark Kelly. Now, Mark Kelly did pretty well, and he showed the way forward for a very, you know, a Democrat, a Democratic Democrat to win in that state. So maybe that confounds what her theory of the case is. I do think that this move probably doubles her chances of retaining the seat. Now, I don't know if that's a double from, say, 30% to 60% or 20% to 40%, but I do think, bad at politics, I think she correctly assessed that her biggest problem would be in the primary, getting through uh, Ruben Gallego or Stanton or someone to her left was going to be a problem. And so she counteracted that with this move. I don't know how good it was for democracy or the party that she was once in or the people of Arizona, but I do think it was a move that was in her self-interest. The question is, did she lay such poor groundwork that she forced herself into this uh, desperate, desperate gambit? What do you think, Jamie? Well, there's an easy bisexual joke I could make about doubling your chances, and I'm not going to make it. Um, look, as I recall, she's voted with the Democrats 93% of the time. So that 7% have been some very high-profile votes, of course, that drove a lot of Democrats crazy. Uh, but she is basically a Democrat. I think it's uh, unfortunate that the left wing of the party um, has in some sense, you know, forced her into this position, in some cases, literally uh, following her into a bathroom um, with the sort of, you know, harassment and the attacks on her, that she doesn't feel that she is comfortable anymore in the Democratic Party. And I think this is part of a broader trend where the extremes are gaining ground within our two political parties. Obviously, it's much worse in the Republican Party. I'm not drawing a, a moral equivalence here between the two. But the far left is a growing force within the Democratic Party. It's uh, the, the, the squad keeps on adding members with, with every election. Uh, we see a, a aging generation of Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. They are on their way out, and it's unclear who's going to replace them. And I think it's unfortunate, but she's not a conservative. She's not a right winger. Um, she's not a, re a, a Republican and Democrats clothing. Perhaps Democrats can think about what it was that they did that led Kirsten Cinema to this decision. As you said, she votes largely with Biden. She votes, you know, on, you know, she's a reliable vote on things like nominations, which are really important. But the fights she picks are so bizarre. And so she chooses to hold the positions that are incredibly unpopular with not just Democrats, but independents. For example, like she opposed closing the carried interest loophole. You know, she's, you know, in favor of tax cuts for the wealthiest in corporations. And frankly, whatever your view on those policies, they're, they're just not popular with Democrats and they're not particularly popular with independents in Arizona um, or, you know, narrowing the bill on lowering prescription drug prices for seniors, like just things that are such obvious political wins, she goes in the opposite direction. So I, I guess I just find it hard to see this as progressives pushing her out for her ideology when her ideology isn't particularly clear. What does she actually want for Arizona? What policy disagreements does she have with Democrats? It was sort of just this nebulous kind of every, both sides are messy and this is ugly and I just kind of don't want to be a part of it and, and come out sort of pristine. But, you know, I'm, I was sort of looking for a, a clear articulation of where she disagrees with Democrats or why she can't be a part of it. And from a policy perspective, there isn't one. Yeah, I do think in my assessment, I perhaps over-index for the progressives' penchant to never cut her any slack or never see what she's doing as in her own rational self-interest. But I have to concede that point you make, Sarada. I sometimes am confused by exactly what she wants. I don't think I always know exactly what Joe Manchin wants, but I generally know what he wants. He knows how to articulate that. And so often with cinema, I, I just wound up being a little confused. Does she just want to be difficult? Does she not want to give progressives a win? Maybe she just doesn't want to be on the record. If Joe Manchin is going to be the one taking the flack, trying to 
push the party, let's call it a little to the right, or at least not give as much uh, funding as we could to what he later called, I think kind of cleverly, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. I do think it's hard for someone of her predilections or her assessment of what her voters want. I think it's pretty hard for them to exist in the House. I think it's less hard for them to exist in the Senate. I don't know that John Tester is so different from cinema, except for a couple of stylistic things. And therefore, I do kind of agree more than I disagree with your assessment that she has at least confused me on the politics of all this. Uh, I don't think it's in the interests of the party um, to come out against her. I think the local party in Arizona seems very angry with her, understandably. But there's been a different tone from national Democrats, um, certainly the ones in Washington in the Senate who have to work with her and want to maintain a majority. And looking at the state of Arizona, the dynamics in play, I think if the Democrats were to run a candidate against her uh, in 2024, I think it's all but certain that the Republican would probably win. Well, doesn't it all depend, Sarada, on if the Republicans run a MAGA candidate or if they run a uh, Doug Ducey type candidate? Absolutely. Although it does seem as though the Republican Party in Arizona is trending towards the towards the Carrie Lakes of the world and Blake Masters and away from uh, from the Doug Ducey's of the world. Like Jamie said, they just might have to suck it up. And you know, she actually sort of very uh, ostentatiously does not caucus with the Democrats. You know, doesn't show up at the lunches and all that stuff. But she does, you know, mostly vote with them. She's on board with the nominations. On most issues, she's there. So yeah, maybe maybe we just have to suck it up. But the, the- uh, I predict they will uh, allow uh, Gallego or Stanton to run. Um, but what do you think? You're closer to the decision making than I am. I mean, I don't think they have a choice, right? It's not as though Gallego is going to, you know, care. So if he wants to run, he's going to run. And there's not a whole lot the National Party can do about it. Be curious to see sort of where things are at the local level. You know, what's what's the state party doing? And he says that he's going to make a decision after the holidays. That's a ways away. We've got a while. We've got a couple of years. And so Cinema now has a couple of years as uh, an independent, whatever that might mean for her, to show Arizona and the National Party what she plans to do. And she's also got a couple of years to define Gallego should he choose to run. So it's it's early yet. Who knows? Well, as Kirsten Cinema swaps one political label for another, the U.S. swapped an arms dealer for a basketball star. We'll discuss that controversy next. We're back with Not Even Mad, and this is Roger Karsten's special envoy for hostage affairs speaking to CNN. People that are held overseas are important to us, and that's kind of the uh, where I'd say I start when I look at the question morally. Was it bad to trade someone like Victor Boot? I think the question is, it's horrific to leave an American wrongfully detained in a foreign jail cell. When WNBA star and two-time Olympic gold medal winner Brittany Griner was returned to the U.S. on Saturday, it was a remedy of an injustice, a relief to her family, and an affront to critics of the weakness of Joe Biden. That's the word they used, weakness. Griner was traded, as you heard, for Victor Boot, the arms dealer known as the Merchant of Death, who had been detained for a decade after being scooped up in a very clever sting operation in which he agreed to sell arms to Colombia's FARC rebels. Boot also sold arms to U.S.-backed rebels in Angola. And of course, he also sold arms to the government those rebels were fighting against because that's what notorious arms dealers do. It has been argued that trading Griner for Boot and deals like it will just incentivize states like Russia to kidnap or improperly detain more Americans as bargaining chips. Of course it will. Everyone knows that. Just as everyone knows, we say we don't negotiate for hostages, but we do, and we should. Either we're a country that will go to extraordinary measures to protect our people, or we are a country that will go to extraordinary measures to punish our enemies. But when those two creeds collide, we have to choose one. I say we chose correctly. But Jamie, I'm going to read a tweet that you posted from Peter Rao, who served in the George W. Bush White House as Associate Director for the Office of Strategic Initiatives. He tweeted, I'm glad she's free. Speaking of Griner, this is an uneven trade. The merchant of death for a WNBA star. It sets a bad precedent. And what about Paul Whelan? 
I'm not saying that Ruff's view is your view, Jamie. I want to let you fully explain your view. But could you at least, as a service to us in the audience, articulate that sentiment, the sentiment that's animating his argument? Well, it basically incentivizes the kidnapping and the hostage taking of American citizens by international bad actors uh, in order to get their own rogues and criminals released from our custody. And that's what happened. Uh, Brittany Griner was uh, arrested on trumped up charges. She had small amounts of hashish oil in her bag and was sent to a labor camp. Um, uh, clearly uh, a punishment that vastly exceeded uh, whatever the Russian law called for in situations she was taken right at the outset of the war in Ukraine. So it was clearly done for political purposes. And it was done with a very specific goal in mind. She was also a celebrity. Let's not forget that. That was, that was a crucial part of this. You know, there, are, there is another American citizen who's been languishing in jail for longer on similar charges. Um, I don't have the name uh, with me, which I should, and that's indicative of the problem, is right, is that this person's not a celebrity. And, and they've been I think it's uh, Mark Fogel. That's right, exactly. Point is taken, that's yes. right. So, you know, this was done very specifically, and we acceded to it. And so, obviously, I'm glad that she's home. Any American held abroad in such fashion uh, is wrong, and we should want those people to come home. But there was a cost to this, and we should not pretend that there wasn't a cost to this. This has raised the chances of, of, of American citizens being taken hostage overseas by adversarial powers. Uh, the, the value of an American passport has gone down now um, because the price of, of the head of an American has gone up. Sarah, you worked in the White House. You probably, I don't know, I'm going to guess, weren't exactly in the room uh, working out the deals, <laughs> but maybe you saw it from afar. Right. I was releasing hostages. No, I was so, so far above my pay grade. But I did see the staffers who were, and I know you know some of the staffers who were involved in those discussions, and they're harrowing. I mean, you see these families coming into the White House, pleading their cases, trying to get information. And actually, while the Obama administration, I believe, overhauled hostage policy, in part because of complaints from families towards the end of the administration. But it's a really, really difficult issue. And um, to see sort of armchair Twitter opine on what they think should be done without all of the information is is just kind of irritating. But, you know, to Jamie's point, you know, I'm sure he's right. I'm sure that there is a cost to all of this. But going back to Mike's earlier point, this has always been done. It will continue to be done, right? America will always go back and negotiate for hostages. And maybe that does you know, increase the value of an American passport, although I would argue that it, you know, the value is pretty high right now. Um, and I guess it's really hard to know what the alternative was. I will also give credit to her wife, who every time she mentioned Brittany would also say, and Paul Whelan, really speaking up for his family as well. And I think what's kind of gross is how that side has been politicized. So, you know, there are some on the right who have taken this as an opportunity to both demonize Brittany and, and claiming that, you know, it was sort of woke politics that got her released and just politicizing it, which seems to make it worse and making it even harder for his family. So this whole thing is just fraught and awful. There are no good solutions. There's no way out of this that makes everyone happy. Jamie perhaps is right that the costs have been increased. I don't know what they are. It's hard to quantify. And yet, what is the alternative? You know, is it that we are the kind of country, as you said, Mike, that just we go to extraordinary lengths to get our people out because that's just who we are and what we do? And it's also the sort of country that Russia is, and I'm not going to say to their credit because Victor Boot was someone that they cared about, but the message is, if you are one of us, and he seems to have ties to the intelligence community, we're going to get you out. One of the principles I use is, well, okay, does Victor Boot being released back to Russia, does that make Americans less safe? And except symbolically, I don't think it does. He was taken off the grid. He was taken off the chessboard. And the world has changed a lot since he was selling arms. I mean, what arms do the Russians even have left to sell? They're using Iranian drones to fly into buildings in Kiev. I also think, let's think about this, trading for... Brittany Griner, which of course has costs and isn't a fair deal, what, what trade of a hostage who's falsely accused or unjustly detained is. But trading for her is said to increase the cost. But the examples that we give of people who are Americans who are not benefiting from this deal are Mark Fogel and Paul Whelan, 
who were taken before Brittany Griner was detained. So there were still people there who were unfairly detained. So I don't know that Brittany Griner is a symbol of, or in fact, incentivizes more detentions if the people we're talking about were pre-detained. And also, and no one's going to say this, but here, I'm not even mad. You're not going to get this on CNN. Paul Willen might just be, I don't know, a CIA asset, but an intelligent an intelligence asset, which doesn't mean we shouldn't rescue him. It means that we should rescue him. But if you're comparing, oh, why is it that Brittany Griner was released and not Whelan? I hear, oh, it's because Brittany Griner's a celebrity. That's what Peter Rao was saying or intimating or, oh, that Brittany Griner, and you hear this among the more odious factions of the right, that uh, she fits in. I mean, Donald Trump Jr. said this, she fits into a woke agenda. Well, if indeed Paul Whelan, a veteran who was uh, who has an intelligence background and a security background and studied Russian extensively, I've seen experts quoted saying, yeah, that does seem to be the profile of someone who could be working in intelligence. If he indeed was detained because he was uh, trying to steal secrets from the Russians and they would know the truth of that, it is going to be a much higher cost to get him back. So add it all up. I don't think this was actually even a close call. I'm glad we're back and I'm not glad to release this guy before 2029 when he was up for release, but I think it's absolutely worth it. Do you think it's a fair debate, a good debate to have, or does it depress you a bit that it does seem that so many people are not at all happy or resentful that Brittany Griner uh, has been rescued? Yeah. I mean, they're upset at her because she said at some point that she did not think that the national anthem should be played before WNBA games. Uh, I disagree with that view, but I was not aware that it says somewhere that uh, Americans have to have a certain political viewpoint in order for their government to protect them overseas. Um, and it seems that a number of conservatives are either pretending to believe that or they're claiming to because it's politically um, fortuitous for them. To make uh, to make that political point and say that this is an example of the Biden administration's wokeness, that it's uh, going out of its way to uh, rescue a you know anti-American black lesbian over a uh, former Marine and white man, and I think that's a really inflammatory charge. I don't think there's any evidence to it. Um, you know, Robert O'Brien, the former national security advisor, prior to that job, he had been the hostage negotiator. He was saying last summer he was actually praising the Biden um, uh, team and their diplomacy on this. So it is unfortunate to see that reaction. But I mean, everything is politicized these days, so it didn't surprise me. I, I don't want to paint the picture that the only ones voicing that complaint are uh, bad actors on the right. Bob Menendez, Democratic Democratic of New Jersey, said it quite prominently. Preet Bharara was on CNN saying reasonable people can have reasonable objections to uh, this deal. He was the one who uh, prosecuted Boots. So I don't know if I don't know. What do you think, Jamie? Without the animus, maybe we wouldn't be having this debate as loudly uh, as we are. So I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that we are having the debate in the way we're having it. No, I think it, it's drowning out the reasonable voices like myself and Peter Rao, who, whose tweet you mentioned, and Adam Kissinger, um, who are raising, I think, good faith, I wouldn't say objections, but good faith criticisms or um, good faith concerns about the nature of this trade. It's very easy, and this happens a lot in our debate, it's very easy for the left to then ignore those critiques and just point to the raving, the raving MAGA maniacs and conflate the raving MAGA maniacs with the entire right. Uh, and that, and that, that, that happens far too much in our debate. And then it happens on the other side too, uh, where we kind of set up straw men. Um, so I think that there are important concerns to be raised about this. Yes, we're happy that she's home, but we should also acknowledge the costs. Um, and I do think that this was not exactly a fair swap in the sense that, you know, an innocent American citizen is being exchanged for uh, a man with lots of blood on his hands and a very dangerous figure um, who normally would have been swapped for, you know, not necessarily, I don't want to get into whether Paul Whelan was a agent or not, but you know, someone like Boot would have been been exchanged uh, normally for someone of equal stature for us, right? Someone who would have been an intelligence officer, um, someone who worked for the government um, and not an American civilian. I totally take Jamie's point and agree with him and, and wouldn't want to suggest 
um, that you are part of some right wing conspiracy. But no, no, um, no. And, and and I think the questions you raise are really important. And and there really isn't a conversation in America about, say, our hostage policy. This stuff only comes up when there's a big case like this, or there's a high profile abduction, or you know, we hear about the journalists who've been held for years, and you know, but we don't actually have a conversation about you know what the policy ought to look like how transparent is it do we even know what goes into it nobody really talks about that it only comes up in these extreme situations and then it gets very quickly hijacked into a fast-paced political conversation that kind of elides the real issues so I think I mean the questions you raise are important and and worth you know having a conversation about it doesn't seem like we are but not us I mean the the royal we um, but uh, but worth having for sure yeah here's here's a suggestion for American policy. Hey, American tourists, don't bring your hashish and marijuana vape pens to Russia. How about that? Can we agree on that one? Well, from the merchant of death to the merchant of checks, blue check marks, what do the Twitter files say about the possibility of ever moderating such a site successfully? That's up next. You're listening to Not Even Mad. Here is the former head of trust and safety at Twitter, Yoel Roth, speaking two weeks ago with Kara Swisher for her on podcast about the social media platform's decision to ban Donald Trump. If you talk to content moderators who worked on January 6th, myself included, the word that nearly everybody uses is trauma. Mm-hmm. We, we experience those events not some of us as Americans, but not just as Americans or as citizens, but as people working on sort of how to prevent harm on the internet, we saw the clearest possible example of what it looked like for things to move from online to off. We saw right. what was, we saw the way that rhetoric about a stolen election was being mobilized on sites like the Donald.win. Sure. We yes. saw the trafficking of this content in the fringe parts of the internet, and we saw people dead in the Capitol. Roth resigned from the company last month after its purchase by Elon Musk, part of a wave of Twitter employees who either quit or were fired. He was speaking with Swisher under the auspices of the Knight Foundation, one of those highfalutin journalism institutions, and the title of their conversation, Yoel Roth and the Crisis at Twitter, gives you an idea of the gravity with which the mainstream media is treating the changing of the guard over at their erstwhile favorite social media platform. Roth played a central role in the decision to ban Trump, a decision that is receiving a new round of scrutiny due to the recent disclosures of internal Twitter employee communications released by Musk over the past week and known as the Twitter files. Banning Trump was a controversial move within the company, including among its safety team, which determined that Trump had actually not violated the platform's terms of service. Nonetheless, higher-ranking Twitter executives overruled these employees with one of Roth's colleagues, Vijaya Gotti, Twitter's head of legal policy and trust, writing that Trump's tweets constituted, quote, coded incitement to further violence. Twitter's treatment of Trump looked like a double standard in light of how it has dealt with other world leaders and political figures who have issued explicit calls for violence, figures like the Iranian Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, and the former Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed. The Twitter files have also revealed rampant shadow banning of conservatives and the de-emphasizing of their tweets. So, Sarada, as some liberals have warned about Musk's Twitter takeover, have the gates of hell been opened? (laughs) I mean, I think Twitter has sort of always been a gate to hell or hell itself, but certainly Elon doesn't improve it. There doesn't seem to be actual shadow banning in the in the you know, traditional sense of the term. But I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, Elon leaks all these all these uh, Twitter files, and I- I'm not really sure what the whole controversy is. It seems like what he's showing is that Twitter, like every social media company, has a really hard time figuring out content moderation. And they go through all of these difficult conversations trying to figure out how to do it. It's messy. They sometimes make the wrong decision. And then the end. I, I guess I'm just, I, I, I wasn't quite sure what everybody was kind of freaking out about. Well, judging from the conservative media I've listened to, and not just conservative media, the case would go something like this. 
Twitter, which is supposed to be the town square, the uh, the 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 public green. Okay, let's ask to risk that. Maybe that's not true. But Twitter, as the commons, always presented itself as a fair place where people could get a fair hearing. But it was pretty much run by a cabal of left or left-leaning individuals who were overly censorious to especially conservative point of views. And the result of that was, tangibly, the incorrect suppression of a New York Post story that was uh, could have been damaging to Joe Biden, the removal of uh, such figures as not just conservative figures, but Stanford Dr. J. Bakachuria, who uh, raised some, they would say, in retrospect, valid points about the dangers of lockdown, and also just the excessive deference to the liberal worldview in terms of what got through and what didn't, and then lying about it afterwards. Am I saying, am I presenting that fairly, James? I think that's that's accurate, yes. Yeah. And so when you say that's accurate, it's not only what they'd say, but you do think that's that's true. true. Yeah. I mean, I don't, look, uh, Twitter was basically run by liberals for the past 10, really since the beginning of its existence. Uh, And they rigged the playing field. They favored their own side. They secretly hurt the other side. Um, This doesn't come as a surprise. I mean, 90% of the employees were Democrats, and we know that by their political donations. Now it's come into the hands of someone whose politics are eclectic, to say the least. He's clearly moving it more. I mean, all his sort of provocations and what he's been doing has been sort of favoring, you could say, the right side. And so, you know, naturally, the liberals are losing their minds and they're saying it's the end of the world and they're threatening to leave and they're very upset about this. I think we just have to accept that, you know, Twitter is never going to be a neutral public square. Um, It's always going to be controlled by someone, its owners, and they're basically going to favor their, you know, and it's going to reflect their their views in the same way that the New York Times op-ed page is not a neutral ground, right? Nothing is neutral. Let's be honest. In, in, in media. Um, you know, Twitter could be more, it, it, it could be more, say, capacious. It could be more nonpartisan. Um, it, could, it could try to have a more level playing field, but it's always going to reflect the biases of the people who own it. I hope that Elon Musk will do that. He, he will make it a, a more representative um, forum for political debate as opposed to what it's been which has basically been a place where the left gets to call the shots and, and, and rule the roost. I'm not really seeing any evidence. There's this like vast left-wing promotion going on on Twitter. In fact, Twitter's own study, what from what, a year ago or so, found that it was in fact right-wing um, uh, handles and right-wing feeds and you know, the right in general, that was, that was more heavily promoted, that was spreading faster. And that's probably for a bunch of reasons, not just, you know, individual content moderators whose politics run right or something like that, but just the nature of maybe what they were putting out fed into the algorithm really well. So to your point, Jamie, I mean, none of this can ever be neutral, especially when we don't know what goes into those algorithms, but it's not sort of a neutral public square, of course. And the people who are moderating that content are also trying to follow i mean what what i saw what, from from what i saw in the twitter files was just a bunch of people in a company trying to make really hard decisions and follow twitter's own terms of service which they have every right to make right it's a private company they can make their own rules and trying to figure out how to do it and getting it wrong a lot and admitting they got it wrong and i'm not saying that they weren't wrong about the say hunter biden story they were receiving information from the government saying hey in 2020 you might we, we might be dealing with what we dealt with in 2016 with Russian disinformation. This story seems really strange. It could be hacked information. It's The sources might be unverifiable. It's all very sketchy. And maybe you should just slow walk this and figure out what you need to do. And that's a reasonable position to take considering what happened in 2016. So all I'm saying is it's not clear to me that conservative voices were being drowned or uh, quieted out, sh- shut out by by the left. I just I don't see any evidence of that, nor in the Twitter. Well, the New York Post story was a really uh, that was a really blatant example. The entire paper was locked out of its account, and it was done so on the urging of the FBI. I mean, this was a really unprecedented uh, intervention in our domestic politics by our intelligence agencies. And to see, you know, there was something like fifty one former spooks and in security state people signing an open letter. Uh, saying that this was Russian disinformation. They had no evidence to indicate that. Um, That was a really egregious abuse of power. 
And I don't think that we've really come to terms uh, with that. And it sets a really bad precedent um, for this country. It's not the sort of thing that should happen in a, in, a, in a democracy to have our intelligence services interfering in domestic politics. And we haven't really seen that since the 1970s. It was the church committee blew a lid on that. And it's just strange now because it was the left that used to warn about the overweening powers of the FBI and the CIA and, you know, their involvement in domestic repression and, you know, overseas, uh, uh, overseas interventions. And now in this weird transformation, we have liberals in the left, you know, swearing fealty to these institutions because they perceive them as being on their side. Um, so I find that just a strange development in our in our domestic politics, and it's it's worrisome to see this kind of merging of the security state and and big tech in using their combined powers to censor information. That's really what this was. It was censorship. But on the one hand, you're saying that, you know, why should we expect Twitter to be any different from any publication with a view of the world like the New York Times? But on the other hand, you're holding out or at least going back in time and holding out Twitter is supposed to be, well, if if you can censor it, then it's not just a publication making editorial choices, right? You're holding it out as to something uh, more than a publication with an editorial bent. People with ties to the intelligence community or whoever um, impress upon publications all the time saying, hold off on that. You might be, you might be misplaying this. You might be uh, uh, advancing in misinformation. And sometimes newspapers do. And then maybe two days later, they discount those warnings and will publish. And that's literally what happened in this case. It was a mistake. The people who made the mistakes were definitely skewing to the left. And I'd love to talk about what that Yoel Roth's uh, quote that we played about harm and trauma, trauma says to you and why he said it. But it was suppressed for two days. And when we speak of the suppression of right-wing voices, it's not George Will and Paul Jagot, right? I, so I chose someone who's anti-Trump and someone who's not. It was, you know, Charlie Kirk and Dan Bongino. And not just because they're them, they were saying specific things which are factually inaccurate and spreading them far and wide. Well, so, there were lots of factually inaccurate things. I mean, I could. That is true. I mean, how many times did liberals and Democrats make factually inaccurate statements about Russiagate? I mean, it's it's the 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 examples would take all night and take weeks, and you didn't see Twitter censoring that and shutting them down. Um, I I just I don't I don't like this this tendency to shut people up, and uh, it, you know it, we used to have more faith in the citizenry. To make up their own minds. And to, I mean, is that to, why you played the harm and trauma quote? Because yes. it gets it gets at that a bit. Yes, and um, the kind of self pitying tone that he took, um, you know, and also this this we discussed this a couple of weeks ago. This increasingly popular term, stochastic terrorism, which is just a fancy schmancy you know jargon uh, to support censorship. Right? It's to say that certain types of speech lead to violence, and therefore those types of speech should be shut down. Uh, and we saw that in the immediate aftermath of the Club Q attack, where there's no indication whatsoever at this point that the killer was driven by any sort of you know, online messaging. This is the ideological ballast behind the, the, the new censorship, which is that there are certain ideas that are too dangerous for the people to hear. And I think this really stems from 2016. I think a lot of people in this country have not gotten over the fact that Donald Trump won. And they think that he won because he either, you know, hoodwinked the American people with a kind of snake oil uh, or that there were Russian Russian intervention somehow, you know, hypnotized a portion of this country. And if we can block them from hearing these bad, foul ideas, then we can, you know, bring back peace and goodness. And I think that this is where this all stems from. It's this it's this inability to reckon with what happened in 2016, um, that Donald Trump won that election. You know, he might have he might have won it in a in a in a nasty way, uh, and he and he might have won it, you know, on terms and using rhetoric that I abhor. But he won, and people voted for him willingly and knowing and knowing what they were doing. Um, and I think that there is this um, tendency among many people on the left to just assume it's 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 not the ideas we're selling that people don't like; it's just the messaging. And I think that's that lays at the root of a lot of our um, debates about censorship today. 
I don't know if this in particular is a case of the left wanting to censor, you know, disinformation because it necessarily was the reason that Donald Trump was elected. I mean, no one's denying that Donald Trump won. Maybe some people are. If anything, obviously Donald Trump is denying that he lost. But, but the the there are sort of like multiple issues here, right? So one, the the United States government in 2016 was genuinely, you know, detecting real signs of actual Russian interference, right? And so, and and there was a debate within the Obama administration about what to do about that. You know, if they said something, would it look like they were trying to tip the scale? So that was that was a whole complicated issue that was that was real um, and had national security implications. So there's that. Then there is this issue of trauma. And I hear you. And I think that the word trauma is disgustingly overused and a little bit ridiculous in this case. However, um, we should not discount the fact that the legions of people who do content moderation and are forced to watch all kinds of horrific, you know, child pornography and exploitation and just terrible things and see the same horrible, you know, offensive, racist, violent language over and over again, there is something to be said for that harming their mental health. Okay, putting that aside. And then the last point on this is that I don't, I, I, I think that it is maybe incorrect to suggest that Elon Musk is going to be this grand bastion of free speech and, you know, unsent. I mean, this is a guy who's doing a ton of business in China for his actual profitable business of his cars. And do we really think that he's going to sit there and not do whatever the Chinese government tells him to do and not censor whatever they tell him to censor? Like, no, we know that that's not the case. We know that all these companies, whether it's Apple or Twitter or whatever, will do the Chinese government's bidding, even as they're talking about you know, free speech in America. I guess I don't necessarily trust Musk to be somebody, you know, the arbiter of free speech and what's appropriate and somebody who we can trust to necessarily facilitate the kind of open conversation that you're talking about, Jamie, that I agree we ought to have. I don't think that censoring things works, but it, it's just not clear to me that Musk is the right person to be in charge of that. And the, I guess what to me Twitter files revealed above all is that none of these companies know how to do this appropriately to the extent that they want to moderate content. We don't have a solution to this. Um, I don't know what the government's role it ought to be, but it seems like there needs to be one because I don't really trust, you know, these narcissistic tech bros like Zuckerberg and and Musk to decide who says what and who gets amplified and what the algorithm should look like, especially when Musk himself is, you know, promoting QAnon and spreading crazy conspiracy theories and potentially, you know, fomenting violence against individuals that he doesn't like. So the whole thing is troubling for a bunch of reasons, but I, I just, I'm not really sure that Musk is, you know, the free, free speech champion that we really want running Twitter. I take him over Yellow Roth. I don't know who the perfect person is. I know it's not Musk, but I think we have a tension between what used to be, and not for all time, but say from the 1960s, late 60s, early 70s, until around, I don't know, 2010, 2015, the ideal of free speech in America, which is rebutting speech with more speech, versus the German ideal, which the founder of Mastodon articulates, which is that uh, that old idea just creates harm or creates dangers or allows misinformation to thrive and allows bad actors to take advantage of it. So you need some... Uh, presence to moderate the content. But what is content moderation other than a multi-syllabic phrase for censorship? You're going to censor some of the content we don't like. We can all agree that some of it should be censored, kitty porn. But what about the parts of content moderation that are censoring political thoughts? They probably made a mistake when it comes to the Babylon Bee. They certainly made a mistake when it comes to the Hunter Biden story, but maybe on some other things, certainly on some other things that would fall under the same categories and that some of the people who are most upset about Charlie Kirk getting banned. Uh, that was mis misinformation that I should say shouldn't be um, spread or it would be good if it weren't spread on Twitter. Some of that stuff is going to have to be censored if you want the kind of website that at least Jack Dorsey wanted. And I think maybe even that people in their souls, they don't know it, but want Twitter to be not because they wanted to have a leftist or liberal bent. They just want it to be a really useful, not inaccurate, not generally inaccurate utility. So again, I threw a couple of things out there, but the German idea of of free speech, the American idea of free speech, and is content moderation just censorship or even really possible? I think things that are legal should be banned. So child pornography, obviously that's illegal, that should be banned. 
and incitement to violence, which is a type of speech that is also not legal. That should be banned. Other than that, no, not, nothing should be banned. I'll tell you, I can live with that because I live in the world of podcasts, and that's essentially what Apple, which is the number one purveyor of podcasts, and Spotify have decided. And Steve Bannon's podcast is always like number eight, and Charlie Kirk and Bongino are number you know four and seven. And I can live with that. I don't know if I, I don't know if you can, Sarada. Um, I have to think this through. I mean, I think probably uh, again, I err on the side of more speech is better. I'm not the kind of liberal who thinks that we should silence people because it'll hurt my feelings. What I do think is there is some kind of line between letting people say whatever they want and letting them say whatever they want so that it creates a chilling effect that prevents other people from saying what they want, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if we know that, for example, female journalists are disproportionately threatened and harassed on Twitter, and it drives people off the site, I mean, off all social media platforms, right? You know, the comments uh, in, in an article that a female journalist writes are more, much more likely to receive, you know, violent threats uh, than a male journalist. And so at some point, women are just going to say, well, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be. I don't want to be subjected to this nonsense. And so, I, it, doesn't that have a chilling effect on on some people's speech? And so, I I am generally in principle in favor of exactly what you guys are saying. I just want to see how that plays out in the real world in a way that doesn't impinge on other people's free speech and doesn't where where you know a certain subset of the population isn't always the one to pay for other people's right to say whatever the hell they want. And such is our commitment to free speech. We would never want to suppress anyone who would air a grievance. You know, one of those things that grind your gears, one of those things that get your goats. Now is the part of the show that we call the goat grinders. There it is. Sarada, you understand these goat grinders. What is yours? Okay. My goat grinder today is consultant jargon because, and I'm sure you've heard a lot of this, Mike, recently heard the word learning deployed as a noun, as in, let's talk about the learnings from this experience. Can't we just say lessons? Why do people insist on nouning verbs and verbing nouns? Let's solution this. I also heard, do you have a solve for that? There is a widely accepted way of conveying these thoughts. Like we solve problems and we find solutions. As a speechwriter, I'm annoyed. I'm just annoyed. Do they think they're like innovating language? It's very annoying. Over I, I want to note as a speechwriter and a lover of language, the phrase verbing nouns, uh, that qualifies as <laughs> ironic, does it not? Yes. Yes. It was just for you, Mike. Jamie, could you goat grind upon us? Yes. Uh, I don't want to be the Scrooge of this Christmas season, but I'm really sick and tired of new Christmas music or artists covering old Christmas songs. I saw the Backstreet Boys. I've just released a Christmas album. It's all covers. I didn't even know the Backstreet Boys still existed, but apparently they do. Um, I am not opposed to Christmas music. I just think that considering we already have such amazing Christmas standards, like wonderful Christmas time, last Christmas, and the best of all, all I want for Christmas is you, there's really no need to add to the genre. So musical artists, please come up with uh, some better material and stop covering Christmas songs. Only the Billboard list of 100 greatest Christmas songs of all time is full of Michael Buble covering Christmas songs, thus showing the economic wisdom of doing just that. He's been grandfathered in. <laughs> Buble. The Buble clause, the Buble exception. Can I just say that, um, I'm sorry, Jamie, but I think Wonderful Christmas Time is in my top five worst songs, not just Christmas oh, no. songs, but songs. And it has made me question <laughs> Paul McCartney's legitimate genius. No. But then, but to, you know, to Mike's point, he makes a pretty penny off it. So I can't, I can't blame him. It's not the best work he's done. I will say it's, that. It's not, <laughs> really? Not <laughs> as wide as it's not as good as Penny Lane, you're saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Worst, worst song, uh, uh, McCartney, Wonderful Christmas or John Lennon, Happy Christmas, War is Over. You know that one? Oh, God. Oh, yes. Yeah. No. yeah. yeah. What do you think? Yeah. It's, I think it's better than uh, Wonderful Christmas Time. And I can't articulate why. It might be that the cheesy 80s synth sounds in the McCartney version. Yeah. It's just kind yeah. of, yeah. The way it starts, that, ver that, that reverb with the chords. Yeah. No. Yeah. Can't, can't do it. 
But, you know, Lenin, Lenin just putting it on us. So this is Christmas and what have you done? <laughs> Another year older, inaccurate, and a new one just begun, also inaccurate. I, I take exception to all of that. My goat grinder takes us to White Lotus. I'm not going to ruin anything for you. I will say I have a mini goat grinder. Shouldn't Ethan's shirt have remained wet? I don't want to get into it more. But at the end of the episode, Mike White, the creator of the show, said, you know, I'm really interested in maybe for the next season talking about Eastern religions. And that is a bit of my goat grinder. I understand that Eastern religions, Shinto, Taoism, Hinduism are polytheistic and they have some things in common. But you also know they have a lot that aren't in common and they have a lot of conflict and people who are adherents to these religions have gotten into conflict a lot. And my bigger go grinder is just talking about Asian as if it is a coherent thing. I went to a restaurant this weekend and the outfits, they looked a little Maoist. So I asked the staff, is that where they came from? And she says, yes, the designer of these outfits took her influence from all of Asia. All of Asia, I said? There are 4.5 billion people in Asia. There are two countries that combined for 3 billion people. You're talking, she took some influence from Israel and some from Siberia and mixed in a little from Bangladesh. And then we had these outfits. There really is no such thing as Asian. It's a giant landmass. It's almost 50 countries. I think we think we're paying some respect or not being offensive when we speak broadly of Asian, but we're just flattening different, fascinating, distinct cultures and religions. Let's not do it. This has been Not Even Mad. Not Even Mad is a Peachfish project. This show is produced by Ian Scudo. The COO of Peachfish Projects is Michelle Pesca. Our theme songs by Max Kerman. Content design by Big Yellow Taxi. For all your graphic needs, turn to Tony and the gang at Big Yellow Taxi Advertising by Lipson Advertise Cast. Want to drop us a line? The email address is notevenmad at peachfishprojects.com. Sarah DePerry's writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The Daily Beast, and other outlets. If you want to look them up, it's S-A-R-A-D-A-P-E-R-I. I said those letters in a weird, the correct order, but just a weird cadence. Anyway, at saradeperry.com. And Jamie Kerchick's essay, Declaration of Cold War, appears in the December issue of Spectator World. Tune into The Gist, where we pack it up, pack it in tomorrow, and you'll hear the sagacious Nina Totenberg assess the dangers of court packing. You know, if you add to this year and suddenly there's a wave in the other direction, the other party's going to add two more. And pretty soon you're going to have a court of how many people? And please do subscribe to Not Even Mad wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at wherever that is, give us a great review. We'd love to hear what you think. Until next time, we're not saying we're right. We're definitely not saying you're right, but we are Not Even Mad. Not Even Mad.